Please pray with me now at this time. Our God in heaven, we thank you that we get to be here and we get to meet here and we get to worship in your name and stand upon your truth. This world is a shaky place, but under your truth we can stand and we're thankful for this moment that we get to open up your word and worship you through the hearing of your word. Please strengthen us to obey you in this way. Amen. I'd like you this morning to put on your spiritual detective caps with me and ask yourself, are these the fruits of a true Christian? How would you rate the following individual on your own personal salvation meter No, you don't have one of those, but if it existed, how would this person rate He had great endurance for God. He had great experiences with God. He had great expectations of God, meaning he had faith to some degree in God's promises. He had great millennial kingdom beliefs, even we may suggest, great expectations for God. And also, he had great emotions in response to his sin. Sounds pretty good, right? Who is this guy? Seems like he's got the whole package. Well, let's introduce him with a little bit of background. Uh, He was born to a man named Simon, a, a good, albeit Jewish, name. He grew up in the heartland of Israel, if you were to think about Israel in that way. Uh, You could even say he grew up in the heartland of the heartland of Israel. It wasn't just that he grew up in Judea, but he grew up in southern Judea. You don't get much more Jewish than that. His nickname, possibly, as he went by, was the man of Kurioth, in Hebrew, Ish-Kurioth, which perhaps refers to a southern hamlet in Judea, Kurioth Hezron. His first name was probably uh, uh, in the top ten of, you know, those baby name books, if they had those in the first century. Top ten names for a Jewish boy. It was a derivative of the name Judah. So you'd look up in the baby name book, you'd see Judah, Jude, Judeus, Judith, although that's maybe a girl's name. Have you guessed it? Have you figured out who this individual is, who sounds so promising? His name is Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot. He had great, he had great endurance for God. He had great experiences with God. He had great expectations of God, and he even had great emotions in response to his sin. And his name was Judas. Our plan this morning, I want to walk through his life in kind of an overview method, and I want to sketch out some striking applications that have hit me as I have been meditating on his life in this last year. And I want to answer a primary question, and this will be what we finish our message on. What is discipleship according to Judas? What does it mean to be a disciple like Judas? And here's our plan for the day as well. It's going to be all about discipleship. We'll tackle discipleship from two polar opposite angles. This morning, we're going to talk about discipleship according to Judas. And tonight, we're going to talk about discipleship according to 
Jesus, and hopefully he'll be able to clear it up. Sorry if your title in the bulletin is wrong. As it turns out, that's my fault. Uh, Caffeine and Excel spreadsheets do not agree with me. It's my fault. This morning it will be discipleship according to Judas, and this evening it will be discipleship according to Jesus. So first, if you like to take notes, we'll follow a few considerations about Judas for our main headings this morning. And I, and I want you to consider what discipleship looks like according to Judas Iscariot. First off, I would like you to, to consider his life as a whole. Consider Judas's life as a whole. He is invisible for most of the Gospels. His, his, his very first words that we hear are not until six days before the final Passover of our Lord. Early on, he is mentioned only in lists with all the other apostles, but he is always placed at the end of every list, and his name always is quickly followed with the description, the one who would betray him. In fact, it it could be argued when you look at Judas's life, especially in comparison to the other disciples, who were jokes of men in some arguments, that he was the most trusted of all the disciples. Yes, sure, he wasn't one of the big three. He wasn't James, John, or Peter, but he was the keeper of the cash bag. He was trusted. We also see that he seemed to hold a certain privilege among all of the apostles. At the Last Supper, he is positioned in the highest position of privilege possible. He is right next to Jesus himself at that final meal. And it's amazing to me, and and I think this perhaps is part of spiritual deception, but also I think it testifies to how everybody else felt about Judas. Did you ever think about this, though? The other disciples never questioned Judas. They never suspected him at all. He was under the radar the entire time, even at the Last Supper itself. Jesus all but points to Judas and says, that's the guy, and the disciples still don't get it. They don't seem to figure out what's going on until, until Judas is planting a kiss on the cheek of the Son of God himself. Until that point, they're completely deceived about Judas. And consider this, it's, it's possible, it's possible, my friend, to fool a lot of people around you about your spiritual condition. Spiritual hypocrisy is a real thing, and it happens to and among the people who follow the Lord. You can fool a lot of people, apparently, for a very long time about your heart. But let's be clear here, Jesus wasn't fooled about who Jesus was or why he was there. He knew that there would be a betrayer among his disciples from the very beginning. It was a part of the plan, and that is another important point to emphasize. Even though it is possible to fool many people in the church, it is impossible to fool the Lord of the church. He knows his flock But let's also be clear here, Judas was foreknown, planned, determined, not a surprise to God's plan. And he was not a surprise to Jesus as well. He was 
the predetermined betrayer of our Lord. Jesus himself says in Luke twenty two twenty two, indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. It's all according to plan. This was God's plan from the beginning. Not even just from the beginning of Jesus' life, but be, from, be, before the foundation of the world. This is God the Father's plan, and God's plan always goes. Yet at the same time, even though we see sovereignty on display in the life and the betrayal of Judas, we also see the evil intention of his heart and his own willful choice. He is not coerced or tricked or trapped by God. He is not coerced or tricked or trapped by Satan either. He chooses from his own evil will to betray the Son of God. Jesus also says in that same verse, Luke twenty two twenty two, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. It's all going according to plan, but this man will be judged for his part. He will be held personally guilty. Judas is responsible, yet it is according to God's plan. See, do you see some implications here? Some striking ones here. He, he, was the, he was the trusted disciple, perhaps the most trusted of all the disciples in the eyes of the other disciples. He was even close to Jesus. He could, he could hear his name and friend from our Lord in the same sentence. It's a fitting nickname you could give to Judas. You could call him Judas, the most trusted betrayer, because that is who Judas was. He was meant to be a cruel knife in the back of our Lord by the purposes of Satan himself. He was meant to be a cruel, trusted betrayer to hurt our Lord as much as possible. Because what Satan wanted was to keep our Lord from the cross. And if he couldn't do that, he wanted to make it as painful as possible. But at the same time, Judas wanted to. He wanted to. Of him, the psalmist predicts, Psalm 41, verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Or in Psalm 55, 12 through 14, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has... magnified himself against me, then I could hide from him. No, but it is you, a man my equal, my close companion, and my familiar friend. We who had sweet counsel together, who walked in the house of God in the throng. And so I appeal to you, whoever you are, my friend, wherever you might be, think it's possible it's possible to be very close to jesus it's possible to be called his friend it's possible to be trusted by his followers for a very long time it's possible to have proximity to jesus to have respectability in the church and to not be truly a believer Those things, proximity to Jesus, respectability in the church, are no sure signs of true 
salvation. No sure signs. That's what we see when we consider his life from a whole. Let's also consider all of his great experiences also. Consider his great experiences. Once again, the early days of his call to discipleship and the following of Judas early on of our Lord are very veiled to us. So we must conclude that there was nothing special or spectacular about it. We must conclude that it was just the same way all the other disciples were called. Think about that. He probably was called at the same time the other disciples were called. Right before, in the same manner, right before the Sermon on the Mount. Now think about this. Judas himself likely received a personal call from our Lord where Jesus says, leave what you're doing there and come, follow me. Jesus said that to Judas. I want you to follow me. Consider the great experiences he had. Consider the great experiences he had in in hearing, preaching. He heard the very same Sermon on the Mount that we are going through. He heard that. The original one. He heard the sermon on the cost of discipleship from the voice of Jesus Himself, Matthew 8 or Luke 9, the multiple iterations of the cost of discipleship. He heard all that. He heard the parables preached, especially He even heard their explanation as well. He heard Christ's teaching on true greatness and true humility. He heard Christ's warnings about the love of money and the love and affection of riches. He heard preaching on the kingdom promises to faithful followers. He heard even, perhaps, the Olivet Discourse about judgment coming and how the Son of Man would come again. He heard the same preaching. Judas, you could say, heard the very best kind of preaching, right? Because he heard from the very best preacher ever. He perhaps even enjoyed listening to Jesus. And in this way, consider, my friend, whoever you are, Hearing preaching, enjoying preaching is no sure sign of true salvation. But consider also other great experiences of wonders that Judas witnessed. He was there for almost every healing. He saw Jesus go toe-to-toe with demoniacs. He handed out the very loaves and fish that our Lord multiplied to feed 5,000 and 4,000. Likely, He witnessed Jesus raise the widow's son out of the casket and return him to His mother. He saw that with His own eyes. Think about that. Judas was in the boat with the other disciples twice when Jesus not only stilled the storm, but walked out on the water to meet them and calm the storm. He was there in the boat. 
He experienced that. And surely he was there when, when Jesus called out of death itself Lazarus, who came to him out of the tomb. He had the same glorious experiences as the other disciples. Judas witnessed three years of front row seating to the glories and the majesties of Christ. He was called an apostle, which meant Jesus was intentionally revealing himself so that they could bear witness to his person and his power. That was who Judas was. And friend, think about it. Great experiences with Jesus. Even to the point where you believe a lot about who Jesus is and about what Jesus can do are not sure salvation signs. You can believe all sorts of things about Jesus and not be saved. But let's consider something else about Judas Consider his, his energy, his endurance. Consider his expectations as well. Let's lump them all together. He had great energy. He had great endurance. He even had great expectations as well. Once again, like I said, he heard that sermon on the cost of discipleship. He probably heard it many, many, many times. Matthew 10, he heard that you will be treated like your master if you follow me. In, in Luke 9, he heard that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, and that will be your experience too if you are my disciple. He perhaps heard that sermon from Matthew 8, that you must prefer me over everything because you could lose everything to follow me. But what does that tell you? Judas was willing to follow Jesus and endure with Jesus. He was one of those harvesters, one of those harvesters who was sent out by our Lord to preach Jesus' message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, knowing that he would be rejected many places, knowing that he would be criticized in many places, but he was willing to endure it. Judas, in a sense, counted the cost of following Jesus and must have, for a while at least, said, it's worth it. It's worth it to follow Jesus. It's worth it to suffer because His name is attached to my back. In fact, think of this. Judas endured longer than many others endured. Turn over to John 6. Turn over to John 6 in your Bible. John 6 is, of course, John's telling of the feeding of the 5,000. It's a remarkable event that shows the glory of our Lord. He is pictured through this feeding just like the Yahweh of the Old Testament who cared for his people and gave them bread from heaven. That is what this moment, this sign was meant to show. This is Yahweh of the Old Testament. But then Jesus didn't just feed the crowds. He refused to let the crowds just come after him for bread. He insisted that they listen to his words. And that 
is what many could not take. Look at what it says in, in John six sixty six. As a result of this, that is the words of Jesus, many of his disciples went away and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil? And now he was speaking of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. My friend, do you not see? Do you not see the implication in all of this? Judas endured with Jesus three years. He, he even endured when many chose not to follow Jesus anymore. He suffered rejection. He perhaps went nights without lodging himself. He perhaps suffered as well the criticism and stigma that Jesus received from the religious community. What does that mean? It means just sticking it out with Jesus is no true, sure sign. It means just liking to be in Christian circles is no true sign. It even means being a hard worker in the name of Jesus is no sure sign. It perhaps even suggests that giftedness, abilities, skills for Jesus also are no sure signs. But that brings up a question. Why did he endure? Why did he keep following Jesus for so long? The answer is frightening. The answer is because he believed the Old Testament. He held to glorious kingdom theology. He believed a Jewish kingdom was coming that would rule over the earth with a Jewish king at its head. You could say he was a good dispensationalist. We could say he had perhaps a slightly on-point millennial kingdom view. Maybe even better than our own. He saw all Jesus had done because these miracles are, of course, previews of Jesus' kingdom power. They are to show off who Jesus will be on a much, much broader scale in the kingdom of Jesus. He saw those miracles and he concluded, yes, the coming promises of the Old Testament are near. He saw demons immobilized and he said, if this man can immobilize demons, what army can stand against this man? And perhaps even in a passing thought, he saw Jesus feed thousands of people from nothing and he thought to himself, he can feed armies that can never be cut off. We could fight forever. 
He had great kingdom expectations in a way. He saw Jesus' kingdom, power, and rejoiced. He said to himself, "Uh, this is the one, this is the man. No army fashioned by man or Satan can stand against him. Also, no army under him can be cut off. It'll be worth it all. I can endure a little discomfort to be with this man. And this is weird to think about, isn't it? But, but friend, just suffering a little endurance is no sure sign of salvation either. Uh, maybe you're, you're thinking right now, <laughs> oh, well, what are you leaving me with then? What is a sure sign of true salvation? Well, that brings us to the true nature, the inner heart of Judas. And I, and I hope by finding out what he was lacking, you and I can find greater assurance of salvation. Let's consider consider his turning point. Let's also consider his turning point. When did Judas turn on Jesus? Now, I'll make an argument to you. I, I don't think Judas was in his own intention betraying Jesus from day one of discipleship, right? I I don't think he had this three-year betray Jesus plan in the back of his mind because it was a bad plan. It didn't work, as we will see in a moment. He kind of blew the plan in the end. But also, I, I don't think the plan just suddenly creeped up on him in the end. I don't think he woke up one morning, the morning of the Lord's Supper, and said, you know what I feel like doing today? Betraying the Son of Man. No, I believe it was through a series of offenses that he collected against Jesus that were used by Satan to turn Judas's heart all according to the perfect plan of God. John 13, 2 says, at the Lord's last supper with his disciples that the devil had already put betraying jesus into judas's heart how did he do this how did he put betraying jesus into judas's heart it was through lies it was through lusts it was through anger it was through bitterness it was through resentment it was through revenge and the desire for revenge that's what fueled him and isn't that always the way our hearts get tricked in those same ways. Allow me to suggest two probable points where Judas either began to turn or fully turned. The first one is a maybe in my mind. That the more, the more I think about it is a probably. But the last one is a definitely. A definitely. So let's, let's think about the first one, the maybe. This is, of course, during the feeding of the 5,000. If you're still in John Sticks, stay there. Uh, this moment is significant because, as we've already read in verse 71, uh, this is the first time Jesus identifies to the rest of his disciples that there is a devil in the midst of the apostles. Once again, this was right after the feeding of the 5,000. This was to reveal Jesus as Lord And apparently, it was highly effective because it created a fervor among the multitudes to make Jesus king. 
You may recall from Mark 6.45, it was right after this feeding that Jesus has to force his disciples into the boat to in, order, in order to uh, cause them to escape from this kingdom fervor. And the word used there is very strong. It says in Mark 6.45, and immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowds away. The word there, made, is, is really an idea of force or compel. There's an intensity there. There's an urgency there. You must get in the boat, and I'm going to kick you into the boat if I have to to get you away from here. What is Judas thinking? Well, I don't want to psychoanalyze Judas for too long, but I'm just suggesting to you that perhaps he was thinking, wait a second, as Jesus kicks him into the boat. This is the perfect time for you to start this whole kingdom thing. The people are on board. I'm on board. You're here. Let's do it. Why isn't Jesus making himself king? Why isn't he allowing this to happen? What other thing does he need? What other qualification is he looking for? There is nothing left for him to do but just take the kingdom and reward myself and voila. But what is he really thinking inside? If that's really what he's thinking, what is he really thinking inside his own heart? Why isn't Jesus doing what I want him to do right now? This would be the perfect time for him to begin this kingdom thing. Do you ever feel like that? Why isn't Jesus just solving that problem right now? No, he could. I feel like he should want to. Why isn't he doing it? Uh, today is the day of my doctor's appointment. Why isn't he solving my problem today? Today is the day of this big interview. Why isn't he intervening now? Today is the day when my worry and my anxiety is through the roof. Why doesn't he just get rid of those things now? These might even be really good things. Today my son feels like he's on the, the edge of eternity, going to make a ruinous choice for his soul. Why doesn't God save him now? I don't want these unholy sexual desires today. Why doesn't he take them away right now? I don't want to be anxious. I don't want to be fearful. I know he can do it. Why isn't he just taking these things away when I ask him now? Why isn't Jesus fixing my problem? I know how easily he could solve them. Why doesn't he? John 6 tells us that after this day, when Jesus rejected being king and rebuked Jews for seeking physical bread from him rather than spiritual bad bread, as we've read, that many so-called disciples went away from him. 
And I think they went away from him because they began to say, this isn't the Messiah I want. This isn't the Savior I need. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying any of those kingdom realities are wrong. And I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't come to fulfill those kingdom realities in the future. And I'm not even saying that Jesus doesn't have the power that he provides for his people who endure suffering and worry and doubt and confusion in this world to not endure. But I'm simply saying that it is very easy for us to wonder why Jesus doesn't do things on our timetable. And that causes us to question. And when all of your hope and all of your expectation are rooted in a Jesus that you think must do this or this or this, that is where the heart of the betrayer will come out in you. That might have been Judas's turning point. Doesn't say. But that brings us to the definite turning point in Judas. And, and once again, this is definitely when he turned on the Lord. And this is the anointing of Jesus. The scene where Jesus is anointed by Mary. Turn over to John chapter 12. It is clear that at this moment, Judas has already determined to betray the Son of God himself. Of course, this is right after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, and it's right before the triumphal entry. It is six days before that event. Uh, Mark, of course, is interesting here. He moves this event later. It's af- Mark says it's after Jesus' entry, but it seems as though he is doing this intentionally to put it right next to Judas's betrayal because he wants to make a contrast between the heart of Mary and the heart of Judas. But he's, he's moving the events around, but this event happened before Jesus entered Jerusalem. And of course, this event is different than the event that Luke reports in Luke 7. Um, This happened at the house of Simon the leper. It is very hard for me to believe that Simon the leper was also known as a Pharisee at this time, and also that was a totally different part of our Lord's life. This is Simon the leper, who Jesus probably healed, and Simon the leper loved Jesus. That's very different than the picture we see of Simon the Pharisee in Luke 7. Matter of fact, this, it should be pointed out, according to Mark 14.3, is at the house of Simon the leper in Bethany and Lazarus and Mary and Martha are, are together. This doesn't appear to be at their house. It, it perhaps is a party of friends from Bethany who all love Jesus and want to care for him and want to celebrate all of the amazing things that he has done for them, like cure their leprosy and raise them from the dead. John 12, verse 1, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. And Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a litra of perfume of very costly, pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, 
and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Just a, a, a few notes here. A litra of perfume is a pound worth, and this is, of course, a small fortune. It's later revealed that this is worth around 300 denarii, which is about a year's wages. Usually such perfume was put in a very expensive jar that was designed with a long neck to keep all the perfume from coming out all at once. You would only get a few drops because once again, this is gold. Mark says it's an alabaster jar made with fine marbles itself perhaps from Egypt. And that makes sense why you would have an expensive jar to hold expensive perfume. Anyone who has kids and has a syrup bottle knows that that stuff can come out fast and money just is flying out of that. Mark 14.3 says this slow dripping jar caused Mary a problem because she wanted to get all of it out. So she broke it, the expensive jar to get the expensive perfume out. And she anoints his feet with it. And, and it's interesting, the Gospel of Mark says she anoints his hair, so what I conclude is she anointed most of his body with this perfume. And then it says here in John that the whole house is filled with the fragrance, the powerful fragrance. And anybody who has fragrance knows a little bit of fragrance is okay. But a lot is not so okay. I mean, three sprays of my cologne and my wife is zipping up her hazmat suit and running for the nearest exit. (laughs) Uh, This would have had a powerful smell that would have perhaps irritated a lot of people on a number of different levels. And we get the sense that it did create a house-wide stir, a stir, uh, Matthew 26, 8 says it wasn't just Judas bringing the accusation that we were about to read. It was, it was the disciples. They were indignant by this. It stinks in here. And that was a waste of money. And that's what Judas has in his heart as well. Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was going to betray him, said, Why? Was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now look at this. He said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to take from it what was put into it. Judas was upset. I just lost a lot of money. And of course, after this, what does Judas do? He goes right to the high priest and he trades Jesus for a fistful of shekels, which would have possibly been about 10% of what that jar of perfume would have been worth. So it was a real blow to him to not get that jar. 30 shekels, by the way, it's, it's an amount of money for sure. It was the price that you would buy a slave in the Old Testament, but every commentator seems to, to agree that it was wasn't a lot of money. But they also seem to agree that this was the best deal Judas could get in this moment of desperation and urgency. It wasn't a great deal, and the high priests could see that he was desperate, and like those wise and shifty and shrewd business dealers, they saw 
an opportunity to not only get Jesus, but to get him on a bargain. Why? Because Judas was angry. And Judas wanted to get rid of Jesus quickly. And he couldn't wait for a good deal. He knew no kingdom is coming. No kingdom is coming. Jesus is talking about his death, his rejection, and his death. Kingdom is out. I want to get as much money out of Jesus as I can. Perhaps he wants to do it in the most painful way, out of bitter anger at the three years that he has wasted following this man. How did Jesus, or how did Judas betray Jesus? He did it with bitter anger. That is obvious to us. He did it in a way that would hurt Jesus the most. He is bitter. He is angry. And I want to ask you to consider his great betrayal as well. Consider his great betrayal as well. Judas knew Jesus, and he knew his habits. He knew where Jesus liked to get away. He knew the location of Jesus' private retreats, the Garden of Gethsemane. And Judas now was given the job by the chief priests to find a good time and a place where the crowds would not be with him. And so that night, the night of the Lord's Supper, he went to the supper with 30 shekels probably jingling in his pocket. Why, why, why would he go? Because he didn't want to arouse suspicion. And, and, and look, look what Judas even experienced here on his final night with our Lord. John 13 gives a clear picture of this Last Supper. And it is important for us to just make a note of the table arrangements. Usually in those days, the dinner guests would fan out in a U-shape, around a U-shaped table with their legs going outward. And the host would usually sit at the bottom of the U, and then the servants would come inside the U and serve the guests as the host, or Jesus in this situation, talked to everyone from the very front and the top of the table. And everyone would probably rest on their left elbow and eat with their right, and to be on the left side of the host at the bottom of the U was considered one of the highest places of honor in the entire feast. In fact, it meant you were sharing the very same bowl with the host. So he must have liked you. Look at that. Judas shared Jesus' very bowl. Judas shared Jesus' foot washing. Think about that. Judas, uh, friend, you can share in many good and generous gifts of kindness from our Lord. And is it possible, let me suggest to you this morning, that he even shared in the Lord's table. You could read through Matthew, Mark, and John, and it may suggest that Judas left before the bread and the cup were passed, but it isn't actually all that clear. When you read Luke, however, it seems to suggest that he was there. Taking. And this is perhaps the, the true damning moment of, of Judas' life because after receiving the bread that Jesus gave, Satan is said to enter into the heart of Judas himself. He refused the final offers of kindness from our Lord and Satan took over. Both God's sovereign will 
and Judas's bitter anger are both still on display. Then, of course, after escaping from the meal, after thinking he had been exposed, he had to move fast. He runs to the chief priests and gets a group of soldiers and brings this massive throng to the garden where he seeks to betray Jesus. Perhaps he's anticipating Jesus is going to run and going to hide and going to try to find an escape. But what does Jesus do? He comes right out to meet Judas. And then, what does Judas do? He plants a kiss on the cheek of Jesus himself. This is a symbol of affection. This is a symbol of friendship. This is to make Jesus hurt. I am betraying you. You, your close, most trusted disciple. I am rejecting you. And I want you to know how angry I am about the three years that I spent following you. Jesus is betrayed. Jesus is killed. And we all know suddenly great remorse and anguish floods the heart of Judas. And we see he had great emotions concerning his own sin. But look at that. That was not the kind of emotions that leads to life. It is the kind of emotions that leads to death. Just guilt over your sin is no true sign of salvation. Grief over his sin only led to his doom in suicide. And after he felt great remorse... His guilt leads him to death and the most horrible kind possible because he cannot even kill himself right. The branch that he used to hang himself broke and he fell onto a rocky spot on the ground and his entrails gushed out. Look at the horrifying, look at the horrifying Reality given to us by this biography of Judas. He had great energy at first. He had great experiences throughout it all. He had even emotions about his sin. But we shouldn't be comforted by these marks. Why? Why did Judas betray Jesus in the end? He betrayed Jesus because, once again, Jesus was not the Messiah that he wanted. Jesus was also not the Messiah that he needed. A substitutionary sacrifice for sin? I don't need that. Dealing with sin in your people? Purchasing a people, redeeming a people from the judgment of God, that's not my problem. I don't need a Messiah to save me from sin. How about you? Why are you here? Who is Jesus to you? Do you follow him because of who he is or what he can give to you? Is it, is it friendship that Jesus provides for you? Is it getting your family off your back? Is that what Jesus provides for you? 
Is it a hope that Jesus will fix all of your problems in this life? Is that what Jesus provides for you? Is Jesus this weak understanding of hell and a get-out-of-hell-free card to you? Here's a sobering thought. I would suggest to you that even though Judas did not know he was betraying Jesus at the very beginning, always followed Jesus with a betrayer's heart inside. Judas turned against Jesus with the same qualities that he pursued and followed Jesus in the end. He turned against the Son of Man with great energy, with great endurance, with great expectation, with great emotion. And those were the same qualities that he followed Jesus in the beginning. It was the same heart, though, that spurred on his bitter, stabbing betrayal. This is the heart of a Judas disciple. When times are good, when times are great, when you think Jesus can solve your problems right now the way you want, you have great energy, great endurance, great excitement, great expectations for God. But when times are bad, when Jesus isn't doing what you want, you have great energy, great endurance, great excitement, great expectation, great emotions in turning away from Jesus. There's this character in Pilgrim's Progress named Pliable. He is, be, he is in the beginning of the story. And as his name portrays him, he is easily manipulated by the greatest pleasure that he sees in the moment. Initially, he is eager to follow Christian on his quest to the celestial city. And he even follows Christian with a great amount of joy. And as long as things are good, following Jesus is great to pliable. But when did he quickly reject Christ and desert Christian? When the sorrows of the Christian life did not match the pleasures of the Christian life. He deserted Christian because he wasn't after what Christian was after. He deserted Christian because there was no burden on his back keeping him towards Christ, seeking deliverance from his sin and his guilt. That is why he left Christian so easily. What's the heart of a true disciple? Discipleship according to Jesus, Judas, uh, that kind of discipleship has a heart for Jesus only as long as Jesus meets your needs today. But true discipleship holds fast to Jesus, not for today, but for expectation in eternity and the true need that you have in your guilt and just judgment before God. You cling to Jesus because in Jesus you find total satisfaction for all your sin on his cross. Until you have a sin problem, you cannot follow Jesus and be his disciple. There's this hymn 
Jesus. Keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain. Free to all, a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. Near the cross, a trembling soul, love and mercy found me. There the bright and morning star shed his beams around me. Near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me. Help me walk from day to day with its shadow o'er me. Near the cross, I watch and I wait, hoping, trusting ever, till I reach that golden strand just beyond the river. Near the cross, near the cross, be my glory ever, till my ransomed soul shall find rest beyond the river. Let's pray. Our Lord, how glorious and how magnificent the truth of your gospel brings to our soul that we can become saved and justified before you, that we can, with trembling hands, come near the cross. Lord, we beg, keep us near the cross. Make that our glory ever. That we would, hoping, trusting ever, keeping its scenes before us, follow you truly, richly, and with great joy throughout all of life's circumstances. Lord, you, you said that you are the bread of life. And he who comes to you will never hunger. And he who believes in you will never thirst. Keep us near the cross. Make that our glory ever. And our Lord, now we, we come to remember you this day. To remember your body and your blood. To remember our sin and our just punishment, but also to remember more your blood, your righteousness, and the satisfaction that you have made for us and on our behalf. We pray that you would quicken our minds and our hearts through the power of your Spirit to see your cross over us each day and to be our glory ever. Pray this all in your name. Amen.